Miss the show, no worries. We got you covered on our podcast on point tonight. We take a look at some polling that I find pretty surprising that suggests a pretty big majority of Canadians believe that police are racist towards people of color. Now, is this polling that was done based on emotion or does it speak to the facts? We will speak with someone who ran and conducted the poll. What do Monday's by-elections tell us about the state of, you know, federal elections and uh, state of politics in this country? I mean, yes, Trudeau won, but it was not the wave of red that the liberals are used to. And we'll talk with one of the guys who was part of the team in Washington that actually murdered some of the murder hornets and hopefully got rid of all of them. We'll talk to that and much more. Let's get going. What's your point? You just don't ever get to call Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. We're in an unprecedented global pandemic that really sucks. Uh, it's tough going through this second wave. It's frustrating having shut down all of us, our lives, through the spring and now be forced to make more difficult choices and knowing that it's going to be a tough winter ahead as well. I agree with nothing this prime minister says, but he's right. COVID sucks. And now he's warning Christmas is at risk, which means, well, maybe it's time to admit we're doing this thing wrong. Alex Pearson with you on this very dark and soaked wet uh, Tuesday, October 27th. And by the way, you will barely, rarely ever find me agreeing with the uh, Prime Minister, but at least he's now admitting what most of us know, that yeah, COVID-19 sucks. And by the way, Doug Ford said that last week. And this is just round two. I mean, we haven't even really started it, and it's already exhausting. Not just the, not just the health side of it, but it's the, the economic hit we know is racing towards us. It is the isolation. Like, I barely leave the house. And I'm a housebody. So that's saying a lot. I literally take my kid to school, pick him up. And that's it. And, you know, the dark and cold that's starting to take hold, that sucks too. The whole thing just sucks. But those better days, you know, Trudeau was promising, those I think are a long way off. Because even when we get out of this thing or get a vaccine, it's going to take time to administer it. It certainly won't undo all the financial destruction this virus has caused. But you know, if Trudeau is warning that Christmas is at risk, then look, it's time he get better medical experts in place. It is time, I think, we change our approach because people are tired of making all these sacrifices that don't seem to be stopping the spread. It's easy for us to want to throw up our hands. I think we have to ask ourselves who we really are as Canadians. Are we really good neighbors? Are we really people who care about the most vulnerable, about each other? Yes, we are, but we're also really tired. And we're also people who expect that those in charge do their part, like getting the financial aid you promised weeks ago to businesses that have already waited months, you know? It's time you take charge. And at some point, not just Trudeau, but these elected officials, they've got, I think, to get experts who don't treat the virus like a game of whack-a-mole and who can maybe figure out ways we can live with this thing. Otherwise, we may survive the virus and it could be, by the way, with us forever, but it's going to leave us in financial rule, uh, you know, ruin and also dealing with decades of mental anguish that will absolutely spare no age group. 
And then, you know, at the same time, at what point do individuals do their part? I mean, for all the confusion people complain about, it is not that difficult to understand what needs to be done. Wear a mask. Don't hold big parties. Don't go to big rallies. I mean, as Brian Pallister, I think, stated quite aptly, just simply grow up. Is get with the program and start respecting the sacrifices that you have to make. They're small compared to the price that others will pay for your stupidity. So grow up and stop going out there and giving people COVID. Pretty simple, no? I mean, we see the stories all the time. You've got weddings and parties. I hear of them all the time. You've got universities having keg parties. You've got protests. I mean, why is your fun... Why is your fun okay at the expense of others? Because this is not about giving up freedoms. You're not being asked to go to war. It's about, it's about basic sacrifices that'll help businesses survive and maybe keep granny and grandpa alive. But, you know, it's clear. I mean, a lot of people just don't care. And it's likely those people either have financial stability, maybe job security, or that they have nothing to lose. But it is really frustrating. And I, you know, you think of what this is going to be like in a few months. I mean, the prime minister said this morning he's trying to be all hopey. You know, spring and summer are just around the corner. Well, yeah, you forgot the five months in between a freezing, cold, yucky, snow, salt everywhere, darkness. That's a lot to get through. It's a lot to get through. But aside from killing a Christmas fun... The Prime Minister actually seemed a little relieved today, likely because of the uh, results of those two by-elections Monday night, both in Toronto, both won by Liberals. Shock of all shocks. I mean, no one should be surprised at this, because you could literally run a squirrel under the Liberal banner, and the squirrel would win. It's a sure thing. But in these races, it was uh, Yara Sachs, who won York Centre, and well-known TV personality Marcy Ian, who won Bill Morneau's riding at Toronto Centre. I have absolutely no idea, zero clue, why Toronto is so blindly loyal to this scandal-plagued party. I just don't get it. But what last night also told us is that loyalty may be actually starting to wane for the Liberals because the wins were not convincing. I mean, there are a few hot takes, you know, that should actually give Trudeau pause as he's pushing to bring down his government. I mean, yes, a win is a win. You take whatever win you can get. So he'll hold on to these two seats, but it was no landslide. In fact, support for his party was down substantially. And in York Center, the conservatives were actually way up. And sure, the pandemic may play a role to a degree, but last time around, the liberals won these seats by over 50% of the vote. They had a big, big, big vote count. And Mercy Ian, who is a very well-known personality, TV person, uh, one in Toronto Centre with 42% of the vote. And new Green leader, Anime Paul, was just eight points back. And she only ran her campaign for 20 days. And I suspect had there been more time, and if people weren't so distracted by all of COVID and everything else, it actually might have been closer. But for her, having uh, no seat is, is a big problem. She's a new leader. And Jagmeet Singh can certainly uh, explain to her the disadvantage she'll have if she does not get her, her name and face in Parliament. So now would be, I think, a great time for Elizabeth May to get out of the way, you know, retire. Lord knows her expiry date's, you know, way past long due. If you can't get more than three seats in 15 years, look, it's time to go. Give this new leader a chance to get in. 
But York tells, I think, an interesting story because a liberal candidate won by just a few hundred votes. So if uh, Team Trudeau were laughing at Aaron O'Toole, they're not now. Which brings us, of course, to Max Bernier. I don't know why he ran in York Center beyond me. I mean, he never stood a chance. He barely registered. Uh, and I think it's pretty clear he gets off on being the spoiler. But I think it's time he also realizes that his brand of politics doesn't sell. It just ensures that the left will remain in power. I mean, once upon a time, I really liked Bernier when he was normal. I do absolutely understand why he's got some support. There are many out there who are absolutely fed up with today's politicians, and they are absolutely fed up with not being heard. I get that. That's why Trump won. Like him or hate him, he gets the electorate. And so they like someone who speaks for them, who speaks his mind. But that's not resulting in votes. I mean, sure, it's impressive. He built a federal party uh, in under a year. He ran candidates in every riding. That's a big feat. But his vision's short-sighted, and he gets atten attention for taking punches, but he can't punch through. And in politics, you either win or lose, and now he's a two-time loser. And so I think for his supporters, do some soul-searching. They may not like Aaron O'Toole, but there is no such thing as a perfect candidate or perfect policies. Not everybody is going to be happy all the time. So decide. If you're so angry with Aaron O'Toole and because of whatever, if you're so angry that you're willing to hand the country over to Trudeau for, for another four years, then you've got your answer. But Bernier, I mean, I think he's taken the People's Party as far as it can go. I think uh, the party's over. Or find another leader. As for Jagmeet Singh, whew, he needs to figure out who and what his party stands for. Because they were a big loser last night. Again. And even when they lose, they try to say it's a win. It's the weirdest thing. We're number four. We're number four. That's not a reason to celebrate. Sorry. But that's because I think his party stands for nothing other than propping up a corrupt government that they say all the time, we're going to hold you to account, and then they never do. And cute TikTok videos don't win elections. And competing with the liberals on all the same issues also is not going to win elections. So look, if you want to keep coming in last and calling that a win, have at her. But you maybe, especially with the new green leader, figure out what you stand for because the new green leader will come and eat your lunch. There are a lot of young people who are very curious about who uh, Anna Mae Paul is, what she has to offer. And if she actually stands for something, they might just go over there and then we're the NDP. This surprised me a little bit. We um, are seeing some numbers that seem to suggest that right across this country, a big portion of uh, Canadians see a very big problem with the way police forces deal with black, indigenous and people of color. And uh, Angus Reid polling, one of the better pollsters in this country, they dug into this issue. They polled 5,000 Canadians. And I was surprised by this, but they found 63% agree systemic racism is a serious problem, while 73% say police interaction is inappropriate with this same group. But when you look at the numbers, there's a very, very clear divide in who thinks this way in the country, with many less having this view in rural centers than you do in the big urban centers. Let us bring in Shashi Kurl. She's president of Angus Reid Institute and was a part of the study, which was called Defend or Defund. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. 
All right. So um, let me ask you this first, just so we can get the context. When this polling was done, was it done at one of the times when there was a lot of emotion running because of, uh, you know, the high profile nature of, of deaths like George Floyd? I mean, when would the period have been done for this kind of polling? It was conducted at the end of the summer, and certainly we saw a period of time, several months, uh, where conversations, uh, protests, uh, high-profile discussions in this country and south of the border uh, have been occurring uh, when it comes to the intersection between policing and uh, racism or discrimination. But Alex, you and I know this is not uh, a new or or a first-time conversation we're having in 2020. Uh, we, We know that these are issues that have popped up. Uh, going back to the murdered and missing women, uh, Indigenous women's investigation and, and commission on that. We know it's something that, that pops up uh, every time a, a, a person of colour uh, is either killed or dies or, or has there's an in-custody death or, or something happens at the hands of police. And we start asking these questions and having these discussions as a country. And, of course, just as, as recently as last week, you had the RCMP commissioner having to defend her force, again, around issues and accusations of systemic racism due to what's been happening in Nova Scotia. So it is chronic. It's ongoing, and it's something that Canadians are alive to, uh, regardless of their view on it. It's, it's something that they're not ignoring. And certainly it doesn't help when the, um, you know, the head of the RCMP can't even explain what systemic racism is. It doesn't give you a whole lot of help that they would know if it exists or how to to deal with it. Was there a specific age divide when you looked into these numbers? Um, you know, uh, was there younger versus older? How did the, how did that part of it break down? There are some really big demographic divides. So we are a country that, on one hand. Um, you know, the majority of whom, and it's always important to remember that the majority isn't everyone, it's, it's, it's more than half, though, and in some cases mm-hmm. it's up to two-thirds, say that, yeah, there are some issues with racism within the ranks of police institutions and departments right across the country. There are problems with the way police officers deal with people of color, with people who are Indigenous and Black. But to your point, and as you said in the intro, some big differences on who thinks what. So if you're older, if you're someone living in a more rural community, if you're someone who lives in Alberta or Saskatchewan, if you are someone who votes conservative federally, you are far more inclined to say, uh, no problem here, no story here, we categorically don't think this is an issue or a problem. And, uh, and in fact, if anything, police funding should be increased rather than decreased. On the other end of the spectrum, and then there's a couple of buckets in between, but on the far other end of the spectrum, you've got the people that we call the defunders. And why do we call them defunders? Because not only do they agree that there are serious problems with racism within the ranks of police, but they also think that the only solution is to cut police budgets. These people are younger, between the ages of 18 and 34, much more likely to live in the GTA, much more likely to live in Ontario as a whole, tend to lean left politically, either NDP or liberal, and, uh, and are just people who have a very profoundly different perspective on this issue. So we don't find a lot of consensus, Alex, in the way the country is thinking about this. 
Right. And yet right across this country right now, there are several issues uh, and high tension issues, uh, be it the uh, situation that we're looking at in Nova Scotia with the Mi'kmaq. You've got the situation kind of simmering to a boil in Caledonia. There are issues uh, dealing with Indigenous people out in in, um, in B.C. These things are percolating. And then, of course, when you've got big urban centers like Toronto, you've got a lot of gun, gun violence and gun crime. Um, and, and the conversation has been going on for some time. And, and the prime minister is asked about, you know, what are you going to do about this? Um, And he doesn't really address it. He likes to give the talking points, but he hasn't given a concrete plan, even though he's made many, many promises. They're more symbolic than they are, you know, substantive. So what is, you know, what is the, the end game here? That is a, an answer for someone way above <laughs> my pay grade, Alex, because I think what I think what these data show us, which we kind of knew, but it's important to set down a baseline and measure it, is that yeah. these issues are really complex and and one fix or one new rule or one new right. law is not going to change things and it's certainly not going to change things overnight. But there is I would say there's one big policy piece that we did pull out of these data that really stood out to me. And that's the fact that two thirds in this country, regardless of what they think about racism within policing, regardless what they think about adding or cutting police budgets, um, what we do find some consensus around is the idea that there should be more allocated resources towards things like crisis teams and social Mm -hmm. programs and housing programs so that number one we're building societies that that are perhaps a little better supported and bolstered from cradle to grave so that we're not dealing perhaps with as much crime but secondly so that when 911 is called by a family member of someone who is dealing with a mental health episode or crisis or an addiction crisis the first people coming through the door are not people in a blue uniform armed right. and really approaching the situation per their training from a public safety and law enforcement perspective, but actually from the perspective of someone who's trained to deal with the people who are in crisis and need help. You know, the cops have a lot on their narrow shoulders as well, and, uh, and I'm not defending bad or abusive behavior but God, I wouldn't want to be in their situation some of the time. I'm sure you wouldn't want to be either. Well, I wouldn't. And, and I covered crime for a really long time. And these problems have been going on for a, certainly a really long time, especially when you live in a city like Toronto. And, you know, to, to put it all on the cops and expect that they're supposed to be, you know, everything to everybody is simply not fair. And so I look at this as, you know, a systemic uh, pattern of people coming into power and saying, yeah, we're going to fix it. You know, they take the knee, they do all these symbolic things, but they, what they don't do is actually address it. So I don't see yeah. it as a defund or defend. I see it a blend of both that, you know what, you know, mobilize the officers so that they are equipped and they do have that um, support. So if they're dealing with a mental illness cult, they've got someone in uh, with the expertise who can deal with it. And then they're armed should something go wrong and or if the call turns into something else like a homicide, etc. Again, I look at it as a failure of leadership um, that could have been probably instituted a long time ago, which is more supports uh, to make a better rounded system. 
Yeah, and and at the end of the day, you know, police are there to solve crimes, prevent crimes, obviously, but solve them. So wouldn't it be better if then their job is more focused on, I don't know, solving unsolved murders? And, uh, yeah. and and dealing with those out, uh, outstanding issues. Um, so, you know, I think that if you're a policymaker, what you take from this is that the time for equivocating over whether or not systemic racism is an issue in policing is over because there yeah. are very, very few people now, certainly a minority, not a majority, who think that this isn't an issue. So when you have that much consensus on is this an issue, it's an issue because you know and yeah. I know that perception is reality. So if people perceive a problem, it's a problem. Um, but beyond that, I think the, the fixes are a lot more nuanced. And what's interesting, Alex, we talked about that, that uh, urban-rural split a little bit, is that a lot mm. of the flashpoints for examples or discussions about systemic racism or racism in policing actually come out of rural environments. The people in those communities don't always yeah. see it the same way. So whether it's the Colton Bushy shooting in Saskatchewan or what we're seeing out of Nova Scotia, very different perspective. Indeed. And so I don't even have to ask you if it will be an election issue. Should we get into an election anytime? Because there's no question it will be an election issue. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> should we get into an election anytime? <laughs> I think there's well, enough elections going on, Alex. I just came out yeah. of a BC, a Saskatchewan, and a couple of by-elections. So let's, That's let's right. tell well, those folks in the House of Commons to just, you know, cool it for a bit, please. There you go. Well, we'll, we'll wish you well uh, and hope you survive the uh, election south of the border, and then uh, we'll see where it takes us. I really appreciate your time on this. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That is a Shashi Curl. She's with uh, Angus Reid. Look, they did a, a really in-depth look at these numbers, and it's not a black and white issue, but it's certainly worth the read. And again, the way I've seen it and the way I've always seen it, because I've covered uh, like hundreds of criminal cases, is that you can't blame the cops for everything. And certainly those in charge have had plenty of time that by now they could have, you know, um, built better teams, better rounded teams, better trained teams, put more resources. And this should have been done a long time ago. And I think we could have avoided an awful lot of the tensions and angers we are seeing now. Well, good to have you with us on this Tuesday night. New polling, we chatted about it earlier in the show, suggests that there is no appetite for a federal election, despite all these provincial elections that we've seen across this country. Canadians in this polling say they want stability until 2023, which may not be good news for Justin Trudeau, who, you know, for now is riding high in the polls and who has, you know, best chances of electoral victory before people start to actually blame him for his response to COVID-19. And of course, before Aaron O'Toole becomes a better known name. And uh, we saw two by-elections in Toronto Monday night, and the Liberals held on to both of those seats. But of course, this is a very Liberal-friendly riding. You could pretty much run a bicycle in this riding, and if it were a Liberal bicycle, it would win. But in no way was it a landslide. And there seems to be a suggestion that support for Trudeau is no longer a sure thing. Stephen Taylor joining us now, former senior political advisor to the former leader of the opposition. He joins us now. Good to have you. Great to be here. I somewhat say that in jest, but I'm not actually kidding. I mean, you, you could run even the worst candidate as long as they were liberal. And this is these ridings are generally very, very safe for uh, the liberals. But that wasn't the story last night. 
Yeah, I mean, generally the uh, Toronto Centre riding especially is uh, it's been a Liberal lock. And uh, York Centre has really only gone Conservative three times since, uh, I think, 1904. I looked it up last night uh, when the riding was established. It's only been Conservative three times. So um, it was actually quite surprising watching uh, the results come in and, and seeing how close it was. And in fact, uh, the Conservative candidate actually uh, leading at one point uh, within the vote count uh, just by a handful of votes. Uh, but by the end, with some of the advanced polls coming in, some of the larger polls in the riding, uh, it just, um, yeah, the, the Liberals uh, finally uh, clinched it uh, at the end uh, of, the, of the count. But yeah, the, um, it, it surprised a lot of observers to see that um, what was considered a very safe Liberal seat uh, could be uh, in such striking distance by the Conservative in York Centre and by the uh, the NDP in uh, Toronto Centre. So either what we're seeing here is some sort of uh, response to um, Justin Trudeau's governance, uh, which is entirely possible. I mean, I, I share a lot of that opinion that uh, maybe it's time for Justin Trudeau to go. But I mean, also it, it could also be... Um, that, uh, you know, the turnout was actually also very low. So it might be that uh, the people who were out to vote were more committed and generally maybe the the Liberal vote in both ridings is a little bit more casual and those voters might not have shown up. Right. And and so the people really focusing on by-elections because, you know, I guess the the thinking is no one cares about by-elections, by-elections don't matter. But if you're in the business of strategy, of, you know, building campaigns and um, looking forward, you know, if you're Aaron O'Toole's team, you're saying last night was a good news story because it was just that it was a few hundred votes that um, divided the the winner from second place. Um, And in the riding of Toronto Centre, which, uh, you know, both these ridings actually were won well over 50% the last time around, and that, that support has definitely softened. And so the Liberals are now up against a new Green leader. Clearly, the left is very divided, which gives them an advantage. Uh, But they should, I think, uh, be concerned about possibly people looking at Aaron O'Toole as maybe an opportunity uh, for new blood. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you're looking to uh, render judgment on the Liberal government, uh, the really the only way to do that is, of course, through the Conservatives. Um, I mean, we saw the other parties uh, from... Uh, Maxime Bernier's uh, laughable uh, entry into a Toronto riding and uh, the NDP collapse uh, in, in York Centre and in, in Toronto Centre. Um, I mean, it just goes to show if you if you fold your party's platform and position into the Liberal Party, as the New Democrats have done recently, um, nobody's going to vote for your by-election candidate. And I mean, we saw a collapse of the uh, the New Democratic uh, vote in both York Centre and in Toronto Centre uh, last night. And um, uh, the People's Party uh, with Maxime Bernier and his other candidates in Toronto Centre uh, still still not registering as uh, as any sort of significant protest against uh, the Liberal government. Whereas, um, like you like you mentioned, um, you know, the Conservatives are within striking distance. Uh, where it matters uh, to the Trudeau government. And, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau is probably looking at these results and saying, and and maybe putting a little bit of water in his wine um, uh, or or a few more stems in his uh, role or whatever you want to call it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what the new expression is, but uh, he he might be watering down his expectations uh, for uh, uh, for an election uh, when, when he wants to call one, because it, it doesn't seem as, as clear to him that it, it might be an opportunity for him to go forward, even with 
the provincial uh, results that we saw re-electing incumbents both in Saskatchewan last night in right. BC earlier this week, and uh, also with uh, Blaine Higgs in New Brunswick, we saw the return of incumbent governments. But it, these results suggest that it might not be so sure when it comes to uh, Justin Trudeau's handling of, of the COVID response. And then you've got Maxime Bernier. And, um, you know, look, he's tried. He's tried twice. I don't know why he ran in Toronto, York. I mean, it makes no sense. I mean, the guys from Quebec, uh, you know, it's like, here, I'll run there. It didn't make much sense. He got barely any support. I get why, Stephen, that people turn to him. They're tired of politicians. They're tired of, you know, politicians breaking rules. And so they see him as a guy who's willing to take punches. But the problem is he doesn't punch through. And so, you know, okay, you formed a federal party, you got ridings filled, good for you, but you got to go because whatever he's punching is not being uh, picked up. Yeah, I mean, either you're going to be a protest vote or you're ostensibly, he, he you know, he said he's uh, he's supposed to be, uh, you know, a contender for power, running, you know, people in every riding and looking to break through. But, you know, it turns out he's becoming another sort of Green Party and not even to the level of success. Green Party has been showing of late. Um, you know, the, the the People's Party, if you actually want to add up their total uh, for, for seats won and lost, they're actually at minus one uh, over their whole history. I mean, Maxime Bernier lost his seat in the election. They've never won seats. They've only lost a seat. So, I mean, the Green the Green Party's success over the last, I don't know, how, how what, 15 years or so? Like, mm. you know, at least they've won, you know, three or four seats, but uh, Maxime Bernier's party, uh, and really is Maxime Bernier's party, he's not offered himself up for a leadership race within his own party. Um, you know, the, they, their, their record is minus one. Right. And and the bottom line is you either win or you lose. There's no in between. And, and I know that the NDP would like to think that even when they lose, they're still winning. I mean, they've, they've adopted that. It's a little bit yeah. strange. Um, the Greens have a little bit of support, but they also have new blood. But, you know, Elizabeth May sh should likely just take a nice long, long walk in the leaves and maybe pass her seat to Anna May uh, Paul, um, give it some fresh blood, a chance for her to get into the house, get her feet on the ground, because we know what happened to Jagmeet Singh when he stood on the sidelines for more than a year. And, and clearly, or if you ask me, Elizabeth May's, you know, best before date was expired years ago. Yeah, well, actually, you make a really great point on uh, on the Green Party leadership. Uh, you know, Elizabeth May has been a around for a very long time. Her, like her, like we said, her record isn't actually very great for the number of elections they've run in. They've run over a thousand candidates. Uh, you know, if you add up all the years that she's been leader, they've run over a thousand candidates in Canadian elections, and they've really only won, you know, three, four, five seats ever. And yeah. um, so. There's her record. But yeah, absolutely. Um, why isn't Annemi Paul uh, running for Elizabeth May's seat? Um, Elizabeth May seems content to sort of, um, you know, park herself in Ottawa, you know, among among the folks who love and adore her uh, in sort of the Ottawa set. Um, but uh, she I don't think she's really connected with uh, real people in, in a long time. And, you know, maybe it's time for Annemi Paul to uh, connect with uh, uh green supporters uh where they actually exist yeah and can be taken actually seriously instead of yeah. looked yeah. at as kind of the drunk drunk aunt that you bring to christmas dinner and say oh god shut her up but nonetheless we will see what happens i guess with this Stephen, thank you for your insight appreciate it hey thanks alex
That is Stephen Taylor joining us here uh, today. So, uh, look, are we going to go into an election? Oh, no, no. It's not a good look when you've got the numbers surging and now we're getting uh, threats that Christmas may be canceled. Well, if you didn't know what these guys were doing, you'd think uh, a group of entomologists were a material threat. But uh, no, they were donning hazmat uniforms in the dark of night so that they could perform this very dangerous mission to basically murder a nest of murder hornets that found a home in a tree in a residential area of Washington, but borders very closely to the Canadian border. And these murderous insects, which come from Asia, they've already been spotted in parts of Vancouver Island. But this was a very covert operation deemed a a success after they sealed off the tree, vacuumed up 85 of these little killers, and then filled the remaining of the tree with carbon dioxide to kill off any other larva. And now the tree has since been cut down, maybe turned into some wood chips, and hopefully this is the end of the threat because these things are nasty. Sven-Erik Spischiger, I think I've completely slaughtered your last name there, is a Washington state entomologist and was part of this operation. Did I get your last name at all right? Pretty close. It's uh, Spischiger. Spischiger. All right. You say it much better. All right. So you were part of this uh, particular operation, uh, and it seemed like just one of these wild stories to actually see the footage of you guys going in and, and the precautions that were taken. Uh, but this this was a pretty vital operation. Oh, a- absolutely. So uh, this particular pest is known to be an active predator of managed pollinators like uh, honeybees. And, uh, you know, with Washington and, you know, actually many states in, in the United States and also up in the provinces in Canada rely on agriculture <clears throat> just to help drive the economy. And, you know, obviously to help feed the nation. Uh, so any any loss to manage pollination is uh, unacceptable. So uh, we were always going to put up a fight if this thing ever got established. Is it? A, I mean, you got 85 of these little things. That doesn't sound like a lot, but I understand that they can do a whole lot of damage, uh, you know, individually. Uh, sure. Well, individually, not so much. Um, but... Uh, uh, basically, what will happen is uh, when a colony gets up and running and towards the, the time when they start making new queens for next year, they'll switch into something called the slaughter phase where uh, one worker will go out, uh, she'll mark a honeybee hive or uh, some other food source like a paper wasp nest, and uh, she'll recruit a couple of nest mates. And in a matter of hours, just a few Asian giant hornets will decapitate um, and basically slaughter the entire hive that they're attacking. And then they'll spend the next few days removing the brood as a food source for their own brood. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty, pretty gruesome uh, scene once they're done doing this. And in in fact, we, we did document a few hive attacks uh, last year in 2019 uh, but uh, we didn't actually know we had any specimens until about December. So uh, it's, it's good to finally track one down and take it out. We suspect there's probably a few more nests out there, but, uh, you know, we'll keep, we'll keep looking and keep working at it until uh, we've either achieved eradication or until it's a lost cause. But uh, we're hoping it's the former rather than the latter. I mean, it literally is the kind of threat that could end a a food supply chain, because uh, I don't think most of us, when we think of bees, we think honey, but they are so much more than that to the actual food supply chain. So are you working with then Canadian um, experts in this area to make sure, because we already had um, a sighting or a a situation where they were in Vancouver. Are these 
Are you guys working with Canadian officials to make sure that these things are eradicated as quickly as possible? Um, absolutely. So um, the provincial uh, apiarist in uh, British Columbia actually uh, went out of his way to meet with me um, December of last year to provide specimens from the nest that they killed uh, in mm-hmm. Nanaimo, British Columbia. And uh, we've been uh, making sure we attend each other's meetings whenever possible, uh, obviously sharing information. And one of your other provincial entomologists actually visited us in the field I think it was last week, uh, just to test out some new trapping methods uh, to try to capture live ones. So, yes, we've definitely been working together and uh, uh, making use of each other's uh, various expertise, if you will. Are these things acclimating to our weather patterns? I mean, we are pretty cold here on the eastern side of both the United States and Canada. Vancouver's fairly warm. I'm not so sure about Washington, but are they starting to get um, temperatures? And is that why they're starting to make homes here? Oh, actually, um, they're quite at home in uh, South Korea and Japan, for sure. I mean, this is uh, these are two of the countries in their native range that they seem to do very well in. And actually, our climate is nearly identical. Uh, certainly, our habitats are very similar as well. Uh, some of the climate models and habitat models uh, that have been run since the beginning of this year indicate that the Pacific Northwest and actually the whole eastern half of the United States from about the Mississippi River to the Atlantic Ocean actually contains pretty suitable habitat and climate for these for this species. And so um, obviously uh, we're going to do our best to make sure it never gets that far, but other parts of the country could also be at risk. Boy, oh boy, I was, I was kind of hoping that you'd say, nope, they don't like the cold, so they're kind of stuck in certain places, so that's not comforting. But nonetheless, you've got 85 of them. I'm sure some of them died, but you probably would keep a few of them alive to study them. Um, and and they're, they're said to be just the most painful of, of, of beasts. I mean, they're huge. Um, they are. It's uh, Actually, when we collected the first specimen from a homeowner report last year, um, my initial reaction was, this looks like a child's toy. Uh, that's how big it was compared to hornets that I'm used to seeing. Um, in the eastern half of the United States, a similar species, the European hornet, has been established for uh, many decades. And uh, most people are pretty alarmed when they see that one. Uh, this one uh, makes that one look like a tiny hornet uh, compared to the ones you're used to in the east. So, And, and uh, do but, they have a predator? Is there, an, is there another predator that, that likes to dig into horn, uh, murder hornets? No, uh, they're what we huh. refer to as a tax predator. Nothing really messes with them. Uh, just humans, really. Assuming you're, you you got your uh, hazmat suit on. But, wow, it, it was an incredible operation. I guess it's deemed successful, but um, now the watch is on to make sure that there's no more. Because they, they truly, I think, could uh, colonize pretty quickly and spread. Actually, our, our, we had a pretty intensive trapping um, uh, network out this year, and we did pick up specimens in a few other areas. So we're pretty sure we're dealing with at least three nests. Um, and, you know, the math would tell you it's probably a few more than that. We just haven't picked them up in traps or received reports from the public. But uh, it's an effort we're going to keep up with, and uh, we'll continue to investigate reports that are called in from uh, Washington citizens uh, for the next you know, several months here, and then uh, start our trapping uh, network up again uh, in spring of next year. All I can say is buzz off 2020.
that's my attempt at bee humor but nonetheless man oh man 2020 has not failed to deliver well i appreciate your insight into this and uh explaining it to us and we'll keep an eye on it thank you great thank you have a great rest of your day Thank you. That is Sven uh, Spieschiger joining us. Uh, he was part of that operation, and uh, hopefully there aren't too many more of these things, but they are a big threat. And of course, we shouldn't be surprised in a year that has just thrown almost everything at us. Thanks for listening. Of course, you can listen live Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson. On Point, this is Global News Radio.